Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me on this conversation is Rahim Tagizedigan. I hope I've said that correct, Rahim. It was an absolute pleasure to get to know you and talk about all of the things that we touched on. Free private cities being one of them, listeners. Make sure you tune in for that part because we are talking citadels, but we are talking citadels you know, not the not the meme type, not wall yourself in in a city and beat people away with bows and arrows and boiling tar. Uh, no, Rahim has a completely different idea and it's uh, very, very interesting and probably something a lot brighter and better to think of as a citadel. We also touch on education, which is something that Rahim is clearly passionate about. And of course, Bitcoin. Austrian economics and Austrian economists and who he studied under and why this is now his passion. So a lot of ground was covered. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Rahim. Please reach out to him. You'll be able to find him uh, in the show notes. Before we do this, please make sure you check out the show's sponsors. I want to make sure you're stacking your sats. Do it safely. Use coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten of course use relay r-e-l-a-i dot c-h forward slash bitten and across the pond in the u.s swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten but then take control of these coins guys that's the most important thing get yourself a hardware wallet that is the next logical step you can use the bitbox 02 bitcoin only edition i highly recommend it it's shift crypto dot c-h forward slash bitten will get you a five percent discount and I cannot emphasize this enough, and you'll hear other podcasters going on about it, but if you have got some coins on an exchange or an app, move them off, please. Let's do this episode with Rahim. Okay, Rahim, as you just heard from the, the lovely lady at Zoom, recording in progress. Great to have you here. Thanks for the invitation. Great to see you again. And it's nice to actually have an Austrian economist rather than, you know, you know, Stefan Levera, he's out there moonlighting and as an Australian economist, but uh, <laughs> well, he's well, an Australian Austrian economist, <laughs> I'd say. Well, I'm an Austrian Austrian economist, which is very rare nowadays. Well, good day, mate. It's uh, it always reminds me of that dumb and dumber scene where uh, he, he meets the lady from Austria. He's like, Oh, good day. <laughs> anyway, let's get to the, who you are. Like, uh, you are an Austrian economist um lauren was gonna be here for the she she might come in so i'll save her i'll save her a question i'll, I'll give her a layup but uh for the listeners that haven't heard about you could you just give us a, a little bit of a background of uh of, of who you are i'm a born iranian so my name isn't austrian uh, rahim but i've grown up in austria and uh, i started out uh, as a physicist in natural sciences but studied economics as well and never Got to hear about the Austrian school in Austria and was very surprised when I went to the United States for 
my career in the natural sciences uh, and there I met up or happened upon this tradition uh, and it was surprising that even at university uh, nothing of it was taught. Uh, Hayek was known as a Nobel laureate uh, but uh, he was always considered like this evil neoliberal from Austria and uh, it wasn't taken seriously uh, as part of an economic tradition. Uh, and then I discovered that the tradition is still alive. Uh, it changed a little bit, but it was still alive in the United States, like many traditions that had to flee Austria more or less. Uh, and the old, the old Austria, of course, is gone as part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which really had a very impressive kind of Austrian enlightenment at the time. So in many different fields of science, uh, uh, and practice as well, there were advances uh, and uh, produced many Nobel laureates, but most continued their careers abroad. And uh, so I made it one of my tasks to try to bring back that tradition to Austria. And I got the chance to learn from the two remaining teachers in the tradition, I'd say. So uh, Ludwig von Mises, the most important economist, moved to the United States in old age. And then his most important student was Marie Rothbard, who ended up with a professorship uh, in Las Vegas, out of all places, uh, uh, which I think is quite ironic. That's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then his most important student, uh, interestingly, is a German uh, called Hans-Hermann Hoppe. And uh, he became my mentor and teacher. And uh, he was living in the United States. He's not living in the US anymore. He moved back to Europe. Uh, and uh, in Europe, the tradition was continued by Hayek, uh, more or less, the other important, I'd say, European student of Mises, not at university, but uh, in the sense of a tradition uh, being passed on by a teacher to a student. Uh, and uh, Hayek uh, had once German student who was an entrepreneur and who was the, um, I think, only remaining person writing at the time when I rediscovered the Austrian school and publishing books about the Austrian school. And that was Roland Bader. He's not well known outside uh, of Europe, uh, uh, but he was very important in the German speaking world uh, by keeping alive the tradition. And he, and he became my teacher in Europe. Uh, and uh, passed on his huge library uh, to me that I now host in Vienna. And uh, uh, that I'd say are the remainders uh, of this tradition. Um, and I got to understand the tradition as a very interdisciplinary one, really based in that kind of enlightenment of the time at the end of the 19th, beginning uh, of the 20th century uh, in Vienna, which was the center of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy at the time. So large parts of middle and, and Eastern Europe uh, and it was a hub, it was a commercial hub, and it was a scientific hub. Uh, and uh, I, I think there we had a lot of fruitful interaction between disciplines and between theory and practice as well. And uh, what I find most interesting is these parts where theory and practice uh, are linked and where different disciplines are linked. Uh, uh, and, and a lot of stuff coming out of the Austrian school turned out to be prophetic uh, in a good sense and in the bad sense as well. Library in Vienna. Tell me more about this. Oh, yeah, it's a really a physical library. Uh, it's at the Scholarium. Uh, that's an institution I founded uh, in Austria about 12 years ago. And uh, it's meant to be what the university could have been, but was never allowed to be. Uh, so it's a private educational institution. 
and uh, people can come here and study uh, the Austrian school in its original interdisciplinary uh, setting. Uh, and uh, it's been going for 12 years. It's a fairly small scale institution, but for Austria, which is a very small country nowadays, uh, uh, it's okay size. Uh, we have about 200 square meters here in central Vienna, uh, and it's a huge library, uh, with tens of thousands of books, I think 30,000 books. Uh, uh, but of course, nowadays, the, the largest part of the library is digital but we still have huge amounts of physical books here. And uh, most of them are not available uh, in a digital form yet because they haven't been scanned to so old uh, German language books uh, uh, from, from this time, from these Austrian Enlightenment times. Have you hosted any Bitcoin meetups in, in the library? Because I yes, think sure, that sure. You, you have. Oh, yes, what? Yes. Uh, Is that, do you do monthly things or? Oh, uh, almost uh, <laughs> weekly. Uh, uh, yeah, the first uh, Bitcoin event was even before Bitcoin. I think in 2008 or nine, we had the first event on cryptographic money <laughs> in our library. Uh, but uh, even the uh, famous cryptographer there, uh, then we had invited, I think it was Jan Grieg, uh, uh, didn't take Bitcoin so seriously uh, back then. Uh, so it was too early uh, in a sense. Uh, uh, but since then, we've had many events uh, on Bitcoin, uh, of course. Uh. Man, that sounds interesting. And are you based in Vienna yourself? Yes. Right. Okay. So you're you're personally at a lot of these meetups and uh, hosting them and helping people understand Bitcoin, Austrian economics, and everything that uh, everything else in between. Yes, of course. But uh, Bitcoin has grown much larger than the Austrian school nowadays. I'd say so. There are other meetups uh, and groups uh, as well. Uh, so most people nowadays rather go from Bitcoin to Austrian economics than from Austrian economics to Bitcoin. Uh, so really the tides have turned in a way, in a sense. Yeah, completely. So how did you, I'm guessing you went the other way around then. You, you were already deep down the rabbit hole of Austrian economics and then yes. poof, up pops Bitcoin. Tell us about that moment. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... It was too early for me as well. I, I mean, early on, all the criticism that you see repeated now made much more sense back then because in uh, 2009, 2010, uh, 2011, it made sense to say, okay, if it's going to be successful and be suppressed, uh, uh, no one will take it seriously outside of a libertarian niche. Uh, it's too ideological. It's everyone who's in it is, is for ideological reasons in it and stuff like that. And uh, for me, uh, the most convincing argument that against Bitcoin at the time was really that link with libertarianism. Uh uh, of course, very friendly towards uh, libertarians, but I thought, yeah, that's the problem because money is for interaction between foreigners who have different values. Uh, and I thought that, that the link may be too strong to a certain set of values and thus be another experiment of uh, kind of community money, uh, which I have been following for a lot while and knew a lot about those community money experiments. There are lots of them in Europe. Uh, then I was very deeply into the e-gold and, and e-gold-like uh, experiments at the time. Uh, and it was really hard to grasp how you would have a, a money that uh, algorithmically has scarcity uh, because it was such a new concept. And then even the cryptographers uh, that I talked to at the time were not convinced that that's the best solution, the most elegant solution, and so on and so on. So it was really hard to grasp the full importance uh, fortunately, I pretty early on, I said to myself, okay, 
uh, very unlikely to succeed. But if it does, the upside is immense. Uh, uh, so unfortunately, I didn't go on ignoring it <laughs> until maybe <laughs> today or, or 2020 uh, or so on. Uh, but it was really hard uh, grasping and, and trying to uh, understand it. Uh, and because, of course, the theory as well has to learn from practice always. And we always have to reevaluate uh, the teachings that we got from Mises and other containers of the Austrian school, who, of course, lived at the time where this uh, uh, project was, was not feasible and technologically, you, you couldn't really understand that it would ha happen. Uh, still, I think what's in Menge and Mises uh, is the soundest part of uh, monetary theory helping to explain something like Bitcoin uh, emerging and developing. Uh, so there's a lot in the Austrian school. And I, I think it's, it must have been inspired uh, by reading some of the Austrian schools. I'm pretty sure uh, that Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, if it's one or two or three persons, whoever did, they were in a way steeped in, in, in the Austrian school and, and this criticism of the financial system. And that must have been an inspira inspiration uh, to that. Uh, so I think it's congenital, but it's not an easy fit. Uh, but that's always the case. If something new is emerging on the world, you try to grasp it and you try to understand, understand and free theory doesn't really predict much. It helps you understand dynamics and it helps you classify things and, and uh, it tells you what to look at and, and which new concepts you may need to understand something. Uh, so I think intellectually that was very stimulating. Uh, and uh, I, I think it helped to understand the appeal pretty early on. <laughs> Unfortunately, not immediately. Uh, it, like was, it was not love on the it was not love on the first side uh, it was sympathy on the first side yeah <laughs> i want to ask what was the light bulb moment for your studies of austrian economics uh because um you know you'd come from natural sciences as you said to to cross over to austrian economics something obviously grasped you and kept you there and really pulled you down the rabbit hole I and mean, you studied under some amazing people and then gone on to find your own library. Do you remember the first like fact or facet or light bulb moment that just sparked with you? And you're like, man, this is this is it. Like this can't be ignored. Oh, for me, it was very gradual. So uh, I always was a bit out of the normal in uh, growing up in Austria. Unfortunately, Austria nowadays is or in particular Vienna, very fairly bureaucratic. Uh, static, museum-like atmosphere, nice place to visit, uh, to live if you don't depend on income uh, uh, and so on, but uh, no really living entrepreneurial tradition, no living scientific tradition in the sense of inquiry uh, and so on. So I always felt, felt a bit out of out of place uh, and uh, very early on I had a deep interest in, in sciences and I was reading from early age uh, as much as I could fortunately the internet only <laughs> appeared a bit later on and then I'm very fortunate that it appeared because it opened up a whole new sphere of knowledge but I'm really glad that I uh, was immersed in books uh, so early and, and could learn uh, uh, to, to, to like the tradition of passing on deep knowledge uh, in the written form. Uh, so it uh, was a gradual process uh, of at first having a more, I'd say, entrepreneurial approach to life. Uh, and that led to the, a bit to the political side, but also the economic side in particular, because then I figured out uh, when I got an interest in economics, that it's very odd that the economics you learn uh, at university 
more or less leaves out the most interesting parts and that's the entrepreneur and money <laughs> because those two phenomena are the most complex ones and and the most difficult ones to, to explain by equilibrium e economics and this kind of for formalized uh, uh, equation style economics uh, uh, nowadays so, so it made much more sense and then over time i learned uh, how interdisciplinary it was over time. And in the Mises seminar, for example, people mostly did not talk about economics. They talked about uh, the science of knowledge, epistemology. Uh, and uh, of course you had natural scientists there and philosophers and people from practice, uh, bankers and entrepreneurs, uh, even artists and so on. And it was all about how can you know and, and how can you really learn something about reality? Uh, and uh, those are overarching meta questions, I'd say. And uh, I was very surprised then that a lot of the things that attracted me in the natural sciences, in particular, uh, I spent a lot of time studying complexity science uh, uh, and, and, uh, and chaos theory, of course, and, and uh, uh, quantum uh, theory. Uh, and the more complicated parts, uh, I'd say in particular, and, and all those complicated parts uh, uh, taught you, uh, well, maybe that was a light bulb moment was when I was in the field of space research and I counted the free body problem. I was surprised that already with free bodies, with very simple motion, you have a very complicated behavior. So it's like three uh, celestial bodies moving around each other. And already with the third one, you have a new uh, level of complexity, uh, which uh, uh, needs uh, another form of mathematics. Uh, and it's a totally different uh, uh, level of problems that you reach at. Uh, uh, and so then, of course, I understood where well, economics got to be even more complicated than a free body problem. It's like a billion body problem uh, and all in, in, in feedback uh, relations and so on. Uh, so obviously, it made a lot of sense to look at it from the field of complexity and, and complex phenomena. Uh, so there, there was a very positive surprise for me that a lot of things that attracted me in the natural sciences were there uh, in the social sciences as well, but neglected. And the Austrian school was very prophetic in precisely those parts in explaining emergent phenomena. Already Menger, the founder of the school, talked about emergent phenomena, something that only very much later was rediscovered in the natural sciences uh, as uh, uh, something uh, uh, very characteristic about complex uh, phenomena. And you have these emergent properties uh, uh, and, and, and so on. And then Hayek was very prophetic in, in certain fields in, in the uh, psychology of, of uh, conscience. In, in he wrote a piece himself on the theory of complex phenomena, uh, which is surprising for an economist to write something that seems uh, uh, so much inside the tradition of natural of modern natural sciences uh, uh, and so on. So that were a few light bulb moments maybe there to see, wow, how is it possible that they got so th so much right uh, so early on? Uh, and I think it's really this, this spirit at the time, because it's no surprise that we have the uh, world best physicists working in Vienna uh, at the time as well. What would you say, this is one thing that, uh, I don't know whether you can hear the chicken in the background there, excuse me, and my neighbor's cutting yeah. his lawn as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what would you say was the, how do you try and explain to people the key difference between economics as we know it and Austrian 
the Austrian School of Economics because it's very difficult to try and get that point across. I've tried many times. I'm no expert. You are the um, the the man to to probably nail this one. Sorry if I'm putting you on the spot. But many of us have grown up being taught mainstream economics, Keynesian economics, or no economics at all. In in my case, during my high school years, there was no economics class. There was even further studies, even like when I went to do A-levels in the UK, you could choose it, but you, you weren't taught it. It wasn't just, you know, part of the curriculum, God forbid. And we can all go down that rabbit hole of, hmm, I wonder why that is. Uh, but yeah, what, what would you say is the, the key difference for people that are tuning in and right, okay, trying to get a grasp of, all right, but what is Austrian economics? I think it's the approach. It's either you can be humbled by the complexity of phenomena that, that you look at uh, and you want, you're driven by curiosity and you say, I don't want to judge right now because I don't even understand it. I want to look at it uh, and find out by having empathy for the people that are interacting there. Uh, and that was the approach of Karl Menger. He started out as a journalist. So he observed the behavior at a very, fairly recent development, which was really a complex division of labor in a fairly recently industrializing place of Europe where we had stock exchanges and a new dynamic at stock exchanges. So first as a journalist, he tried to cover what's happening on the stock exchange. Uh, and uh, uh, I think he figured out from uh, a kind of view at human nature that the one thing we know about human beings is that we are human beings ourselves. And that's empathy. It's not, I know everything and I want to tell those stupid uneducated people how to run their affairs. It's, oh, I'm really interested in how complex this emergent behavior that arises out of people who are as simple as I am and uh, uh, as human as I am. And I can start from there. I can start from very general uh, ideas about what a human being is like, what I'm like, what I try to achieve as ends, what means I pursue uh, and so on and go from there. And the other approach uh, I think was fostered by this whole academic tradition, which is totally opposite. Uh, it's the expert technocrat approach, uh, which was nourished by the natural sciences because they had a huge success. And of course, engineering in particular, uh, I think a lot of the academic establishment somehow usurped the successes of, of uh, engineering, uh, which most success in engineering come from tinkering. It's not really academics teaching at university, but more or less it, it, it worked out that you have this new type of white collar expert uh, uh, being taught uh, in academia uh, and thinking that he's the origin and cause of all this newly found complexity and wealth in modern society, which of course was a, a tremendous dynamic. And it was at the time in Austria as well, it was the bit belated industrialization following the example uh, of Great Britain. Uh, and that, that uh, was a huge shift. Uh, uh, so uh, it's a time when uh, the structure and hierarchy of society shattered because very dynamic and you're looking for new forms of legitimacy uh, to replace religion in a way and this new concept of science replaced more or less religion as a guiding post for society uh, but there of course is the question of, of uh, an elite uh, group of priests uh, that of course help to keep society together give you some guidance uh, and so most sciences reoriented themselves according to the picture of the natural sciences, which was a bit mistaken 
by more or less wanting to have the legitimacy of the engineer, but keep the structure of the old church institutions, uh, because there's a part of the university tradition comes from the church institutions of, of of course, the teaching of the clergy. Uh, uh, the other part comes from the tourists uh, uh, in northern Italy. Uh, so the schools of tourists, uh, uh, legal scholars uh, who would then have practical professions. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, so the forms were copied from the church, I'd say, and uh, the legitimacy was newly found in the uh, new importance of engineering. And from there, modern economics emerges as a discipline because, uh, uh, of course, we have a separate uh, division of labor in every field and division of knowledge. So it was thought uh, uh, that like in engineering, where you have specialists for uh, intricate uh, machinery and so on, and you get to specialize, you should specialize as a knowledge worker in those professions. Uh, and unfortunately, it's exactly this fear where there's very little reality check, because it's all about political hierarchies, it's about who gets to write the laws, who be the expert at court, and so on. Uh, and uh, very bad incentives, uh, I'd say, to really show uh, something for the legitimacy you're consuming already in your high prestige jobs, uh, uh, usually even high salary jobs uh, at the time when it was still an elite uh, uh, segment of the society. Uh, and uh, I think that determined the other approach to economics is like the expert looking at uneducated business people, thinking that that's fairly simple. I know better. Uh, I must know better. Otherwise, why <laughs> wouldn't I have that post and that legitimacy? Uh, uh, so I got to model their behavior. I get to see how it can be improved. And more or less, I get to legitimize my own profession. Uh, and uh, that's the reason why most uh, professional economists in employment, in stable employment, worked in the Soviet Union. And of course, that tells you something. You know, the Soviet Union uh, was such a well-run economy <laughs> because it had so many economists. It, was, it had so many economists and thus was such a poorly run uh, economy because it was a run economy uh, by experts, technocrats, uh, and so on. Yes, uh, I wanted to ask you about as well, you, you brought up there about entrepreneurs and I'd never really thought about this before until falling down this rabbit hole and studying this and listening to people like yourself and, and Safe talk about it. And it, it kind of made me realize that entrepreneurship is kind of the default kind of uh, human instinct but that has been completely beaten out of us. And we believe we are to be just a, a salaried worker for someone else as soon as we finish our studies and, and go on and enter the wide world of scary finance and, and you know, get on with our lives and start building families. Is that, is that a kind of good takeaway or am I missing something there? Or is entrepreneurship just like kind of deeply rooted in, the, in our, us? Uh, partly it's a good take, partly you're missing something. Uh, uh, as with most developments in modern society, uh, we get at the core uh, uh, some, um, I think, developments that are to the positive, but are blown out of proportion, in particular by the distortions of the monetary system. Uh, so, uh, of course, the default is being self-employed or having very small scale companies. Uh, and then, of course, something uh, or what's the positive uh, side effect of larger structures is potential economies of scale. So in many industries, you can have economies of scale, which if you 
consider human beings as homogeneous, uh, which usually is faulty, but to some extent is true because for the basic needs, uh, people are very alike. It's for the elaborated luxurious needs that we are very diverse. Uh, but in the stage from poverty to some kind of, of wealth that uh, allows to sustain yourself and, and uh, uh, bring down uh, the mortality uh, of people because they're not malnourished anymore, because they have clothes of a higher quality and, and more hygienous uh, uh, surroundings uh, and so on. Yeah, the scaling, uh, of course, has brought a lot of wealth increase uh, and it started with the manufacturing uh, and so on. And those necessitate jobs in a sense because they need long-term cooperation where the uncertainty is taken over by specialized people. So have the, the modern entrepreneur is someone who specializes in entrepreneurship. And already Mises understood that even though he was very early in the development, he distinguished between an entrepreneur in the narrow sense and entrepreneur in the wide sense. And he basically said entrepreneur in the, the wide sense, that's the fault of everyone. And even if you have a job, you can't escape that because there's always uncertainty. You, of course, you make entrepreneurial decisions in how much you invest in yourself and your career, what career choice you take and so on. So, of course, that's an illusion that you can't have, that you can outsource somehow all of that uncertainty and have a more certain life uh, um, uh, and so on. Uh, some of that uh, was part, it, this illusion was possible to sustain because we have a lot of artificial certainty uh, where the kind of uh, a lower scale uncertainty, which would be more typical with a learning process is, uh, is replaced by the central bank let uh, somehow uh, uh, have a more long, longer term cyclical patterns because corrections are avoided and you pass it on and on and on until then suddenly volatility increases a lot. Uh, so I think that's an artificial result uh, of our meddling in, in monetary affairs that we have uh, this kind of uh, for a shorter time spans reduced volatility, uh, but in the longer time span increased volatility. Um, uh, so for some time spans, it really seems like you can have a more certain life if you are in a stable employment uh, uh, situation. Uh, and uh, a lot of that is due to distortions. It's large companies uh, being beneficiaries of the Cantillon effect, uh, have e easy access to money and so on. So they can be sustained for much longer than they are productive. And that of course increases the certainty of having a stable employment somewhere. And it seems like you don't really take a risk uh, by going the default career, uh, going for education uh, and, and then uh, from job to, uh, or remain with the same job for decades uh, uh, on end. Uh, uh, but then there's the entrepreneur in the narrow sense and Mises understood that there may be a division of labor as well, that some people, have an um, easier time uh, bearing the uncertainty of decision-making for other production factors than their own labor. Uh, so some people feel more easy with that or it comes easier to them or it may be just a default uh, or a fault of themselves that they can't uh, work under someone else. They need to be their own boss and because they need to be their own boss and because of the potentials of scaling in our time, they tend to be the boss of other people as well, uh, because it seems to make e economic sense. Uh, and I think there's some need. So I don't think that this kind of uncertainty would be equally distributed. I think in a modern economy with much more division of labor than in the past agricultural economies, uh, you'd have different sizes uh, of companies and not everyone would be self-employed uh, 
uh, but some people would have employment. I think today it's distorted. I think too many people have uh, uh, jobs uh, and worse, too many people have the job mindset, uh, which means they assume away uh, fundamental uncertainty, which you can't assume away, uh, and they are out for bad surprises every now and then. Uh, and I think we're entering an age uh, where more <laughs> more frequent bad surprises will happen. Uh, and we've been spoiled a bit by, in particular, in Western Europe, uh, but also in the United States by this post-war boom, uh, a lot of driven by figuring out uh, how to stabilize this kind of credit money uh, production process uh, and, and buying up then uh, later on by central banks uh, uh, of credit instruments and so on to stabilize, seemingly stabilize their price. Yeah, we're certainly in a weird, weird situation right now where you're right. So many people are so reliant on that salaried position and feel as though they've taken away the risk by putting in the hours and years and lots of money for the education to try and get that seat at the you know the, the gilded spot at the big bank or whatever you know um, path you've chosen career-wise but that's just all being chipped away at in front of their eyes because of like the, the fiscal policy of central banks around the world it's it's really shocking so this gets us kind of towards uh, praxeology if you want to um explain to the listeners uh, what what praxeology is to you mm -hmm. uh, well out of this uh, different approach to understanding human beings you realize uh, immediately that economics is a misnomer uh, because you can't study human beings uh, with an uh, economic point of view because human beings are holistic uh, persons not you start working now and you're a different person you go to your uh, company you're a different person no you're an integrated personality with different ends and that's uh, what uh, Mises realized that economics really is a misnomer it's, uh, uh, it's taken up from the ancient uh, Greek but it had a very different meaning back then it meant really uh, the science of households and part of economics for the old uh, Greek thinkers was how do you treat your slaves? How do you choose a good wife? And uh, it's like uh, the philosophy of living a good life as a slaveholder in ancient Greece. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, that's why uh, Mises proposed praxeology. He thought, well, it's where we can start in the sense of science and the science of systematically trying to understand what's going on. It's with human action because we're human beings ourselves. And at the basis, there's interaction in the most interesting phenomena, but we first need to figure out what's action and, and uh, how is it different uh, from other forms of behavior and movement and so on. And there he figured out there's, of course, as, as a spiritual uh, a component here, it's a mental component. Uh, and that's really what makes it that complicated. It's mental uh, beings that are able to learn and they are learn from each other and uh, that adds this whole layer of complexity in the field which uh, Mises then called catalectics. So he thinks praxeology is the overarching uh, part and it's got nothing to do with economics in the narrow sense. It's really understanding how human beings act. And part of that is understanding how human beings interact if they are not guided by tribal and genetic interests mainly. And that's all about the cooperation of foreigners. It's uh, you have ends, but you don't have the same, same ends as the people you cooperate with, but still you're able to meet peacefully because there's a set of norms that allows for that uh, uh, because you figure out, oh, the other person can help me get along and find means that fulfill my ends, but we don't have to agree on the ends first. 
Okay, he can help me even though uh, he doesn't totally agree with uh, what I do with my life and so on. So we can treat each other as adults and we can cooperate peacefully, uh, even though we are not part of one small tribe. Uh, uh, and that's what uh, Mises understood, that there are different uh, layers on how you can look at human behavior. So praxeology is the most general part and it seems most abstract to most people but it's the precondition of then understanding interaction between foreigners I'd say um, and and I uh, uh, express uh, I've draw attention to that uh, it's because most of our modern life we are uh, in a division of labor with foreigners with people we don't know we can't know because it's so many people involved with the products we use and that's really important to understand because it run so much counter our intuitions uh, it's and it's why most people fail understanding catalectics uh, it's to look at it as though it's still this number number size tribe of maximally 150 people and it's all about trust issues uh, uh, and it's about social control and it's about we agree on what we should do uh, nothing bad about that is just not applied to the right layer of living together uh, so things that would make sense in a family in a neighborhood are then abstracted to the global layer. And it's like, we as a global family need to come together and fix that and fix this. Uh, and that's very unrealistic, very naive, but it all comes from intuitions uh, and faulty intuitions for that kind of uh, modern environment that we find ourselves living in. Uh, and there are a lot of evolutionary intuitions, of course, that don't make too much sense if they are not applied to the right scale that they are meant for. Uh, but to this kind of global division of labor, which gives you limitless access to material goods uh, uh, and, and so on. And it's a very different surrounding. I wonder, like, here we are with Bitcoin now, and we have this, we have, is there a new, will a new school of economics uh, be birthed after this? Are we, are we watching something take place in front of our eyes right now? Because we have the constant because we have the, the fixed 21 million and we know, not only does not only do we know it's fixed 21 million we know the exact issuance schedule down to like 10 minutes we know exactly what's going to happen for the next 120 years we've never had that kind of information in front of our eyes for the next 120 years and to mix that with praxeology i mean what would Mises have thought did he ever ever in any of his writing kind of conject that this might even happen or what would happen if we had this does that blow your mind when um, <laughs> yeah well i'm it blows my mind that still the basis uh, seems to be so sound uh, if it's understood correctly uh, austrian economics as this kind of interdisciplinary tradition based on this approach i described to understanding uh, human interaction uh, that i don't think a reinvention is necessary and certainly uh, what you have to do is to develop uh, a tradition and uh, keep track and trying to understand what's happening. Usually what's happening at the time as we speak, you can't understand in theory already because it's on you and you don't know the background and you know how it's going to end up. Uh, and even uh, with Bitcoin, I mean, of course, uh, uh, the all the, the old criticism, most of that is debunked by now, I'd say, because just by, even if you don't like Bitcoin, just by watching the decade of things turning out as they turn out and you realize, oh, wow, that's, I would not have predicted that. So I need to change something about my assumptions, uh, obviously. Uh, what I think someone who wants to understand the world always has to do uh, and check that out. 
But uh, on the other hand, uh, of course, uh, the objective uh, characteristics of Bitcoin are only part of the story. Uh, what Austrian school uh, teaches us is that this kind of subjectivism is what happens in the minds of human being and their anticipation of the future is more important for interaction. And we can't be uh, absolutely certain about that. I mean, all kinds of things uh, uh, can change in perception. Uh, so it's a very, I think, I think, conservative approach to say, okay, we now have a track record in a historical sense, it's not that long, but uh, uh, in that particular context, it's very surprising and surprising enough to uh, uh, well, uh, check uh, your assumptions if you wouldn't be able to predict it uh, and uh, figure out, uh, first you try to figure out how you can generalize more uh, tools of theory. And that's what I try to do. I, I can say now the regression theorem of Mises is wrong, is falsified by Bitcoin, and we need a new tradition of economics. Or I can say, no, Mises tried to explain something at the time and he had a principle and maybe the words he used are not precise enough because he couldn't know what kind of new challenging situations would arise. So I'd rather prefer that. So it's the humble approach and say, okay, uh, I, I can say right now that I'll be better at predicting the future than Mises was at his time. Uh, but I want to figure out if anything of that made sense of his argue of his argument. And I think, yes, I think there's still something valid in the regression theorem. And it's still something that can be applied to understand Bitcoin. Uh, uh, but it's challenging to generalize it even further, because for most people, it becomes even more difficult to understand then. Uh, but that's the thing with theory, where theory really tries to abstract away so much from what's happening to have a tool, a generalized tool to understand what's going on and uh, compare it to other phenomena and classify it according to other phenomena and so on. And I'm surprised that uh, the Austrian tradition holds up pretty well, even though most uh, professional Austrian economists, I mean, those teaching in the university and so on, missed it entirely. And I think a large part are still missing it, uh, uh, but that's, that's normal. Um, and it really boils down to what's an economist. And I'm, don't really think. I mean, I, I accept the label sometimes, but I feel very uneasy. So I, I tried with different uh, affiliations and labels, but everyone has his associations. So sometimes in Austria, I'm referred to as a philosopher, but mm -hmm. then of course I regret it immediately. With the uh, uh, when philosophy tends to be uh, have even worse associations, like people who have don't even have a basic understanding of economics. That's why they are philosophers. And they know nothing about anything else but the most abstract questions where there's no way to judge if they are wrong or right. So they can go on <laughs> uh, doing their philosophy without a reality check. Uh, and of course, it's true. Economists are bad, but some philosophers are even worse uh, than that. Uh, and sometimes I end up defending mainstream economists because at least there's some intellectual rigor uh, and rigor is better than no rigor, but even better would be reality check. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty funny. And and now, like, it, I'm thinking, you've got me thinking actually about praxeology again. And John Vallis, he does a great job of trying to uh, explore this phenomenon that Bitcoin has over people's behavior. So if we're talking about human behavior praxeology and now we have this thing called bitcoin and anyone 
it's like 100% strike rate. Maybe not at the very, very beginning, but at least if you've been holding it or interacting with it or educating yourself about Bitcoin for at least six months, sometimes less because there's so much more content out there these days, your behavior starts to change dramatically. And it could be your diet. It could be exercising. It could be, I mean, Bitcoin is hope is what we say. It, it could be, you, you have that much clearer vision for the future. Has this been something that you guys as Austrian economic economists um, are looking at very, very closely with wide open eyes and interest and in how this is shaping people's minds? Yeah, the interesting thing is, again, there's a concept in Austrian economics which explains a lot of this time preference. Uh, and it was there a long time before Bitcoin was realizing that really our preferences about time shape a lot of our behavior. And uh, saving is a very important expression of time preference. And then, of course, it has an impact if some tools are made turned useless or taken away from you and you're unable to express uh, that kind of behavior, you can have very negative vicious circles of, of feedback loops uh, where if you can't express this long-term orientation and you push towards a short-term orientation in some fields of your life that may catch on in other parts of your life. And uh, I've uh, written uh, a book with two uh, colleagues on the zero interest trap, uh, which looks a lot at the cultural consequences of monetary policy. Um, there's a whole part, a third of the book is dedicated uh, to that. Uh, and it's all based on, on this old insight of the Austrian School of Economics, uh, uh, but reapplied to modern phenomena and trying to figure out how they are related uh, uh, to innocent short-termism, but also it's not uh, just short-termism, uh, it's quite complicated that pattern because it's not short-termism coming out of a choice of people. It's not you just express that you live from day to day, that's fine, it's just an expression of your preference. It's a distortion of time preference, uh, which is the interesting phenomenon here. And uh, that leads to a, a lot of tension within human beings. Uh, uh, and that's why I think you see that potential change there. That's a kind of wolf that opens up with that possibility or to, to look at a very or a part of your existence that made much more important than it should be uh, by making it impossible for people to save in the very long term with the means that they are used to that their bankers uh, I would recommend to them that they are taught at university and school uh, and it's uh, too much volatility for their taste uh, too much speculation for their taste so they got to spend more and more energy resources in thinking about that uh, uh, end which uh, almost every human being has to uh, for old age to uh, maintain some of your income generating capacity uh, in, in a liquid form. Uh, so there's a very, very general and broad uh, uh, intention and, and goal of human beings. And if the means are distorted for that, of course, um, I think it will catch on. Uh, and uh, all of that, what you referred to, it's not only, of course, investment saving, but it's uh, uh, how you nourish yourself, how you keep uh, your body in shape and so on. It's all about the long-term approach to life. Uh, and uh, a lot of the distortions and institutions uh, uh, we have now uh, are setting wrong incentives for short-termism. And if you flip the, the sat <laughs> rather than the coin, and you look on the, the behavior of mainstream economists that, like you said before, have largely missed this, the behavior is becoming 
so I, I know erratic. It, it, it's really kind of as much as it's interesting to watch, like the positive effects over the human mind and behavior. It's almost as enchanting to watch. I mean, we're, we're as human beings, we're we're wired to the negative, right? That's how the news, media, and whatever else gets us. Mm-hmm. Watching these guys explode, and like it's. It must be fascinating for you to sit in the middle of it, having studied that, studied Austrian economics, mm. seen Bitcoin, understand praxeology. Are you like the calmest guy in the room? Like, you know, you, and again, to turn this on Bitcoiners, to turn this on Bitcoiners as well, you know, we're, we're very guilty of being toxic uh, as we've been, you know, told by many, many people. But that, uh, of course, is for a reason, because we're trying to fight the FUD and all of the nonsense, the misinformation and disinformation, and the harm that a lot of these guys are doing to people's lives by, you know, muddying these waters when all we're trying to do is educate and help people. So yeah, if you're the calmest guy in the room, what does that look like day to day to you when you see these guys blowing up? And I, you, you know who I'm referring to. I'm not going to yeah, mention their yeah, names. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I, I totally get uh, what you're talking about. Uh, I'm surprised how emotional economics. And I was already surprised at university, but back then I participated. I had like shouting matches with the teachers because it was such a stark contrast to the natural sciences. When where I pointed out an error, a natural scientist usually would say, "Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, I missed that, uh, or makes sense. Oh, yeah." you could uh, look at it from a different way or re-explaining and no need to be emotional about an error you make on on the blackboard but there i I really had that sense of insecurity uh and uh trying to cover that with being emotional and i think it comes from the approach because economics is so much linked about human behavior and, and, and human interaction so it tends to be judgmental if you go from the technocrat perspective uh, and then you got to be right or wrong and uh, your legitimacy is uh, uh i mean <laughs> put into question and then you want to avoid uh, because that what your ego depends on that's what your job depends on uh, and so on so what i try to do is going back to the value neutral of the Austrian school. And I think that arose because we had a similar situation in the early 20th century when all the ideologies of time met in Vienna in the coffee shop. Uh, you could meet a, like a Hitler meeting a young Lenin uh, and a young Trotsky and so on. It's all everyone going crazy. Uh, so the Austrian school uh, realized that uh, where it doesn't seem likely that we'll agree on a set of values because uh, traditional religion hasn't uh, is losing its place uh, uh, as a conveyor of a kind of certain set of values. And we got to figure out that, but we can't wait for that. Uh, uh, so let's try to understand phenomena without judging them. And uh, let's try to be less emotional in understanding what's going on. And that's what I try to do in discussions with bankers, central bankers who turn out to be, and academic scientists, of course, who tend to be much more emotional than, of course, they are blurred out pretty soon. Oh, it's, it's worthless. And then it's a scam and the Ponzi scheme and, and all those things. Uh, and uh, then I always invite them, okay, uh, you may not like it, you may not need it, but let's figure out why people out there have chosen it as a means for which ends and it may be a faulty means but let's just be humble enough to start figuring out and usually i realize that they've never put themselves in the shoes of the people they try to judge so they don't have the faintest idea of the ends it's supposed to serve but are judging the mean uh, the means and that doesn't make any sense uh, uh, so i i just uh, i ask for some empathy uh, because of course uh, 
people can be wrong and it still it may be wrong to choose bitcoin for some means no one of us can be entirely sure we don't have crystal balls uh, something may happen tomorrow where we change our assumptions or have to change our assumptions that's all fine and that's all humble uh but try to figure out first why other people, other adults are behaving differently than you are. And maybe they have different ends or they are in different situations, have different challenges uh, than you as an academic economist uh, living in a Western country on stable employment, uh, basically who thinks his saving is taken care of uh, for himself uh, by the system of redistribution. Uh, where you get paid out uh, your uh, a pension uh, from people paying in taxes uh, uh, and fees right now, uh, which isn't really building capital, of course, but has been working uh, after the wars uh, for a while now. And that disconnect is so vast now, isn't it? But with the people in these kind of positions that have zero idea of, yeah, I mean, I, well, I think the big problem is like zero, zero accountability, right? That, you know, nobody there, even when they're caught, you know, Madame Lagarde looking at you, even when you're caught and found guilty, there's no penalty, there's no jail time. And in the end, there's just a promotion. How on earth are these people ever going to understand why people on the street are choosing a medium of exchange such as Bitcoin? They're never going to get it. Yes. That, that's why I think it's it's it totally makes sense to say don't argue built. Uh, uh, I don't enjoy arguing too much. I try to point out things and, and help people understand things, but I never argue too much. Uh, uh, with, in particular, people too steeped in the political process and, and trying to how can we reform, how can we uh, improve something, and then of course, what's the best compromise here and there? I, I think it's all misleading and it's a waste of time. Um, and that's why I got involved in the Free Private Cities Foundation uh, that I took over. And I think that's one of the crucial things we get to innovate. Uh, well, we need to innovate as the next decades. It's uh, we've become so dependent. Most people have become so dependent on the lifestyle on people who don't bear any responsibility for directions uh, and who are never checked because the problem is of course with uh, uh, political decisions you take now the results uh, may come in five years ten years time and then you're gone or no one really remembers and there's another new hot topic and new crisis happening uh, in another area and you never get to check if the assumptions were right uh, if the process is right if the institutions are working properly uh, and uh, so there's a lot of failure and short-term orientation which means just do something to uh, keep your face and keep your reputation and legitimacy by just doing something something needs to be done and that's something so let's do it uh, uh, and uh, that's that's the pattern of politics uh, nowadays uh, so we really need innovation in that sector and it's the sector i call of living together if uh, that would be considered politics is how are people living together what rules are they following uh, and what's what are good arrangements uh, for people to cope with the differences in ends uh, and potential conflicts they have uh, and how can we keep alive that peaceful cooperation that's so important for the catalytic miracle to call it uh, of wealth uh, and technological prog uh, progress uh, and just uh, having a better life for more and more people on the planet. Perfect segue to free private cities. That was the exact next topic I was going to go on to. So what are people, when you say free private cities, that to me sounds like, yeah, this is a paradise. How would you explain to people what, what you're working on? When, when was it formed? How did it come about? And how did you uh, get involved? 
Mm -hmm. uh, it was inspired by an academic economist, Samuel Paul Roma, as something to look at in the uh, in the political process, and he got a lot about it wrong, I think, and that's why there were some uh, counterreactions to that. But that got the process in Honduras started, uh, which had shown that yeah, potential is possible to have uh, a legal arrangement in a sovereign nation which grants for parts of the country legal exceptions uh, and that's based so uh, it's very important to have these kind of role models here of course honduras isn't entirely the role model uh, for the sector it's just uh, showing okay it's potentially possible and feasible nowadays to expand on special economic zones and learn from the special administrative zones that we had in hong kong uh, and, and the emirates and so on but still that's that's not enough it's just some kind of role models to start your thinking uh, about it but uh, uh, then uh, a German entrepreneur, Titus Gabor, figured out that uh, he comes from the mining industry and he said, yeah, I know that because in mining, you get long-term concessions from governments and they are difficult governments, but if the incentives are right, it's possible. You have some kind of investor protection. It's possible to do those long-term projects. They are not all great uh, and it certainly is just an industry, but it's a field uh, he, he knows very well as a very successful uh, mining entrepreneur. Uh, and uh, he lost at the same time his fate in, in the political process uh, and he uh, figured out, okay, let's start working from what's possible in Honduras uh, and learn from it and reapply it in other countries. And, uh, uh, and that's uh, then the Free Private City Foundation was based and he wrote a book which has been translated to many languages and he got involved as an entrepreneur in these projects on the ground. Uh, and I did myself to, to a smaller scale uh, and uh, I then got involved with the foundation. Now there's uh, a bit uh, a focus because the industry is growing so much uh, that Titus Gable is focusing on the company called Tipolis which uh, starts to be somehow the, the incubator of uh, new free private city projects, which are all made to be special administrative zones, which means you have like a special economic zone in a country, but a legal provision, uh, usually on the constitutional level in a sovereign country grants uh, the possibility to have judges that are not part of the sovereign nation, but are chosen within this special zone. And you have a legal regime that's different from the sovereign nation, uh, of course, uh, without uh, foreign policy and, and, uh, and usually uh, delicts like murder and, and, and so on. Uh, that you can be, uh, but of course, no one would <laughs> want to do that. Uh, so it's basically about granting more uh, stability for investors. That's the reasoning for the sovereign nations to say, okay, we tried out maybe special economic zones didn't work out. There are thousands of special economic zones, but uh, only very few are successful because usually it's not enough to just offer lower taxes uh, uh, in a country which has a hard time uh, uh, getting the trust uh, of investors that they uh, wouldn't change anything and you have the corruption on the ground and you have to cope with a legal system which is corrupted and so on. Uh, uh, but the crucial point, uh, my point of view, is to have more innovation and to have like uh, smaller projects where you can innovate also with the legal sphere and the setting and how you operate it and how you finance it. So it's an inter entrepreneurial task with different entrepreneurs. It's a mix of an operating company, 
uh, that's doing it before it's an incubating company, maybe the same, but doesn't have to be trying to get this long-term agreement from the legal side. Uh, and of course, you try to protect it as well as possible with in investor protection laws uh, by having a company that's registered in a different place than in the country you're looking at by having the right incentives uh, with the political structures uh, in place. Uh, so there's a kind of profit sharing in a sense, uh, a bit looking like tax farming, uh, which I don't like too much, uh, uh, but you have a to pay a price for everything, uh, uh, of course. Uh, and usually the arrangements are like, you have a, a minimum tax of 5% and then some of that, maybe half of it goes to the sovereign country, but they don't have to do anything. And so it's an additional income. Um, and and the, that's a way to have incentives there. You can structure differently. And there's of course something, a part of that innovation process and in how to structure it best, how to have this long-term stability, uh, then how do you operate that? And then you have, of course, the real estate part. How do you create out of that something which is more like a new city? And that is, of course, part of a very old tradition. It was a very important tradition in Europe. Uh, uh, what's peculiar about Europe is this tradition of autonomous cities, uh, which was crucial for culture and economics uh, and scientific progress and so on. I think one of the most important parts uh, of uh, development is having this uh, kind of more uh, urban uh, shaped ways to cooperate uh, between foreigners and solve the trust issues. And you can solve them partly via technology and partly by institutional structures. Uh, and so you have a possibility again for institutional innovation and competition and trial and error in a sense, uh, uh, because you can now on these different steps figure out what works and what doesn't work. Uh, and you have the consequences because it's entrepreneurs at every stage. So they are in with their money or the money of the people who trust in them. Uh, and uh, if it doesn't work out, uh, you lose the money, it's gone. Uh, so that I think puts much more discipline uh, on it than politics usually, uh, uh, because not only the money is then the reputation of course uh, goes away. So you got to prove something as an entrepreneur and usually people only trust you uh, if you have a bit of a track record in showing or uh, uh, bringing something to the table. Um, at least it's not so wishful thinking and it's just some kind of utopia. Uh, so uh, hopefully, I mean, of course, uh, the economic feel is very distorted. So we can't 100% trust the market in that sense. But still, the market is much better than the political process because it adds the discipline of people trying to preserve the investment. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, there's a certain kind of realism that enters through business people being involved in stuff. Uh, uh, so it's one of the ideas is bringing those kind of incentives to institutional experiments. Uh, not necessarily 100%. So that's what we need to figure out and learn. We see that there's a lot of longing of people for smaller scale communities, uh, which I think are different from the urban settings. Uh, so we got to figure out how that plays into it, how based on modern technology and economic trends that this will look like in the future. It's quite possible. And I think that future cities are smaller in scale and potentially connected digitally and uh, looking a bit different than the kind of urban concentration. I don't think it's necessary anymore to have millions of people living in 
crowded skyscraper like uh, surroundings in order to have that kind of intense division of labor. I think it's now possible to have that intense cooperation in a different way without physical presence of lots of people in a very dense area, but that's out to learn. I mean, uh, lots of people have predicted that before and it didn't really realize because there's a lot of gap, of course, in, in what's possible and what's understood by people, how they change their behavior over time. Um, and uh, I think once you get a bit more long-term approach, a bit more discipline, a bit more realism into it, uh, it will, as in every industry where you have more competition, uh, the outcome will be more innovation and it'll be surprising uh, in many senses how we can innovate on how we live together with other people in the sense of how is it structured, how is it built, what are the aesthetics like, uh, what are communal stuff, what's private stuff, uh, and so on. Lots of things that we have forgotten to innovate in and we just take it for granted. Most people just live where they got their job and they take everything for granted and it's uh, if they still believe in the political processes, like every five years, they, uh, based on their specific angers, they're looking for someone else who's promising something which may improve their surroundings, but overall they don't really have any impact on their surroundings. Uh, and we got to change that. We need mm. to have this entrepreneurial approach. That's where you take a conscious choice. And of course, it's bit more seeming uncertainty but in the long run i think it'll be less uncertainty because of course if you have that approach you learn that you can't be entirely sure you need to take some uh, compromise in some fields and for some things you'll have a very long-term perspective and and therefore this really to see the results i think we'll have to wait for a decade uh, uh, but the industry is very very dynamic at the moment i'm i'm surprised how many people uh, are looking for alternatives uh, and we try to bring that uh, to the ground in a sense and uh, and uh, what's different now uh, compared to 10 years ago when those ideas first emerged uh, again because they're very old ideas uh, i think is that right now there are projects there are negotiations with governments uh, there's money raised uh, there's already a venture fund for that industry uh, so it's maturing as an industry and uh, usually we can expect them the fruits of that innovation happening not immediately but after a while uh, and i think it's the most important industry on the planet and you can see that financially and you can see the impact on lives really people taking decisions about how we live together that's so impactful um, and uh, it determines a lot of uh, our lives and it shouldn't determine it to that extent i think we need to take some responsibility uh, as well uh, but in a feasible sense not in the kind of responsibility for global crisis where we somehow get together and fix everything on the planet uh, but more in a local realist way and how can i improve my life, my surroundings, and what are institutions that in the long term will allow my family to have the fitting surroundings and fitting rules where I can raise children, where I can have a long-term perspective on, on improving my life as a productive being that's peacefully cooperating with other people. And th this fits right into the Citadel meme, doesn't it? For, for yeah, surprisingly, yes. That's why I like the meme a lot. Uh, I think it expresses a longing. Like many memes, it started out as something negative. Uh, and interestingly, Austrian school also started out as a negative meme. Uh, at least that's that's the saying that the German economists are saying, oh, those Austrians are like big backward. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and so it's the same with the Bitcoin Citadel meme. It's like, oh, they all just want to have their own Citadel. It's like gated community sense of... Uh, 
uh, turning yourself away from the world. I think it's, it's the opposite. Uh, it's really, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, if you want to turn something away, it's the bullshit of the world surrounding you and, and trying. Uh, it's a longing. It expresses a longing. And I think it's a fundamentally important uh, longing of people to uh, take responsibility back again for their surroundings, how to live together and think, think about that in the long term uh, as a very based approach to life. Uh, yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, yeah, you're, you're right. You know, the meme started out as castles with the walls and yeah. uh, keeping people away from, you know, possessions and whatever else. But truly, it is a longing for people to be able to live with, with less policies, with less regulations, with more self-sovereignty, with more um, access to you know, greener pastures, um, you know, live sustainably, grow food, rear food, um, you know, figure out sustainable power if need be. Uh, it, and it's not just the Bitcoin community. There's, yeah. This is a huge, huge awakening around the world. It's just that the Bitcoiners are going to be first to do it, probably because they're going to have the means to do it. So if people are looking around and thinking, okay, this free private cities thing's going on, where what what jurisdictions are you set up in or or how can people get in touch with you? Or Because uh, I know there's a few people out there that, um, what do they do? Do they, they sign a license agreement with you or something to go and try and build a free private city in, in that specific country, you know, you talk, talk people through the kind of what work is going on at the moment in different parts of the country. And if they're interested in reaching out and finding out where is this being built, where can I go and move to and help improve this and become uh, a part of this free private city or, you know, in air quotes, Citadel. Yeah, uh, it's fairly early on. So there are already projects in Honduras. There are but four, uh, I'd say, functional or starting special administrative zones called sedes uh, in Honduras. No one knows which will turn out to survive in the long run. It's, it's fairly early. And uh, then other countries are added to the list. There are negotiations ongoing by Tipolis. That's the, one of the companies out there. Uh, there are other, lots of other projects of people either trying to gather people to move somewhere uh, or buying land and then somehow get their own structures up for communal living or co-living style projects and things like that. Uh, uh, now, I prefer the approach of first using that leverage to improve the legal situation because that I think is we've seen for the last years, but already decades, that's uh, really for, for the long term, uh, uh, your life uh, can be made very difficult by a legal regime, which just imposes something arbitrarily on you. And then you've invested a lot in a location and you can't let go. And it's the same thing just on the other part of the planet. That's what you wanted to go away from. So I think it's really crucial for the long term. Maybe, I mean, for now, people still can have a lot of liberty by being a perpetual traveler. If you figure out, I think, Daniel, you are figuring out with your family, we are very few people manage to do that. Uh, I think that's feasible, not for everyone, uh, maybe because for family reasons or What's on. I think that still at the moment is a good way to have much more liberty 
uh, and sovereignty, then most people get to live with the static mm-hmm. life where you just have to eat up everything that's happening around you. Uh, you just uh, go to where you're treated better. And uh, Europe is perfect if you're a tourist. It's wonderful. Uh, even France uh, is a wonderful yep. place to be in if you are traveling. <laughs> you don't have to be a, a typical French person depending on, on, on his income and, and so on. Uh, but uh, I think for the long run, and it's the decade I'm talking, we see encroachments on that. Uh, we see, of course, the effort of the cartel of controlling nation states to limit that freedom. So it's, it's crucial for the long term um, availability of the kind of sovereign lifestyle to have oases somewhere and that need to be legal oases uh, and uh, we know the president is there. And so that's the most realistic way, if you have a long-term perspective, to go about it, to set up those kind of niches somewhere around and various locations around the globe, because some work out, some don't, but most can serve, which work out as a role model again. And that's underestimated how important it is to have places that then benefit uh, and uh, serve as a role model for other places. That's behind the Asian miracle mostly is role models of very small parts uh, of Asia uh, that then can be in parts copied uh, um, and uh, retried at other places. Um, so uh, at the moment, there's the Free Private Cities Foundation. It's there are other institutions as well, which try to approach that field of, let's say, innovations in living together, I'd call it. Uh, the Free Private Cities Foundation is a major construction which try to do the research and outreach, educational outreach, and bring together people who have an interest in this industry, uh, because they might say that, okay, it's too early to move to Honduras. I don't want to move to Honduras. There should be better options coming up. And that's fine. And of course, we'll. Uh, it's so early that it's not for everyone uh, to go there. Uh, and uh, what we try to do is in, in inform, bring together people and do the research, but it's very early stage. So if you're interested, uh, please definitely go to freeprivatecities.com, register for the newsletter uh, and, and see what's what's arising in that sphere. There are other institutions uh, as well who try to cope that, but what's for the free private cities approach, this, this, uh, the foundation is very neutral and it's happy with every kind of approaches, even intentional communities. Uh, and I think a lot of learnings uh, from there and, and the co-living arrangements and so on. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the long-term most important impact that we try to get awareness from is, is, is this kind of structure of long-term agreements by sovereign nations to have some kind of oasis, potential oasis that then can of course influence the host country in a positive way, but it's much more feasible because you don't have to reform a whole country. Uh, and a lot of the impact is long-term, so you don't see it immediately, so it's very easy to roll it back. It's easier to start with a zone, try out what's working. And I think it needs very little innovations to have a lot of potential positive outcome uh, for the host country in particular and the people living there uh, and then go from there. Yeah. And if it fails, of course, we can all do mistakes. Uh, you learn from that and it's not too much lost. It's just, okay, you've got to move on. Uh, you figure out, do I want to stay here or go for another project and so on. Uh, so we need to keep those mm-hmm. learnings feasible in the beginning. Um, and then there are uh, projects starting already with very different approaches. The only ones doing really this free private city approach are done by Tipolis. And unfortunately, the process brings with it that for first, it's negotiations with politicians and then you need secrecy. That's diplomacy, basically. So you can't talk about it openly only until you are absolutely sure that the legal arrangement is there and they, uh, they won't go back on the word and anything. Uh, you can open that up uh, and 
offer it as a new option to the world. And that's what Tipolis is working on. But if you are uh, in contact with Free Private Cities Foundation, of course, you'd be at updated about those projects but other projects as well with certainly different uh, approaches and there's no one size fits all different people have different compromises and for some it's the legal sphere nowadays it's not really important because you're a perpetual traveler so you don't care too much uh, mm -hmm. uh, so for some you won't improve your situation a lot by moving now to a free private city i'd say but over 10 years time you could improve it a lot because you have a foot in one of the oases, which may allow something uh, which is crucial. Uh, for example, you can be registered somewhere, have an address, but still have no obligation for your kids to go to a government school, still have no obligation imposed to you by kind of health uh, dir uh, directives or whatever may arise in the future. Uh, Yes, uh, that forces you because you're a resident somewhere. Uh, and for there are reasons to become a resident somewhere, or at least you need some connection to legacy structures. And that's where it's really important to have uh, alternatives to those legacy structures. Uh, I can attest to everything you've just said. Perpetual travel is incredible. And you know, you are always a tourist in whatever country you're visiting. So you get the you get to see and feel and experience the best. Uh, we did that for two and a half years, but it does get to a point where you just have to, you got to rest up somewhere yeah, yeah. Uh, because the, it is exhausting. Um, yeah. And yeah, France kind of chose us rather than us choosing France <laughs> yeah. just by virtue of it was one of the last places that, uh, that we visited as we were doing that. But I would love in the future to see, and I, this is the kind of future I see playing out like free private cities popping up all over the world. And then you can, slow perpetual travel three to four months in one of these different places and then on again and then on again and then on again and that can be done with families because i know a lot of people listening are like nah i can never take the kids out of school and this is going to take us to the education question yeah. because what what are your thoughts about that how alternative education is being shaped and the, how this is going to play out and how it might fit into a free private cities model you've clearly got some thoughts about yeah. it yeah, yeah. The problem is, of course, it's a lot of it is cultural. Is how we see education, and uh, uh, there, of course, most people think that is it's so you play safe for your kids if you have some kind of institutional schooling. Otherwise, it's too much uncertainty. Uh, but of course, it's not obviously the right answer. For some, it may be the right answer, but I would really distinguish schooling and education and understand how the institution of schooling came about. Uh, and there are some legitimate reasons for that. I think the most important need that schooling is for is babysitting is because you have two parents working uh, full time usually to keep up with the credit rate for your house is the typical lifestyle uh, in Europe nowadays. So both have to work, uh, otherwise they won't be able uh, to afford the, 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 uh, their apartment or house. Uh, and so they don't, just don't have the time. Uh, and of course, they are not living in surroundings that are shaped for children. They are just living in around as they find where they can afford the apartment as they are. So you can't leave your children unsupervised. And so you send them to school. That's the most affordable and, and easiest solution to that. And uh, of that's uh, one reason why schools are shaped like prisons, of course, is this surveillance, keeping them safe, and no one should be able to enter, no one should be able to leave uh, without <laughs> permission uh, and things like that. So, uh, but uh, I think you need to understand that and you need to have empathy for that need that's there. So that doesn't change if, uh, 
you don't change your lifestyle. Uh, and I think a lot of reasons that you need to change the lifestyle before and avoid that kind of uh, credit-based, hugely dependent lifestyle where you have kids, but you then can't really care for them. Uh, and then of course you wanna have uh, something in, in addition. Now the second reason of course for schooling uh, is then uh, uh, credentials uh, is get the permission to enter careers. You still, I mean, as a parent, you may would nowadays you wouldn't want your force your kids to do a career, but you want to offer them the option. And a lot of just is lack of knowledge about processes in the economy that the value of credentials is falling, and the reason for that, and how distorted the structures are that need that kind of credentials, and not understanding that in most places you can study the university by. Uh, doing a one-year, two-year program and getting the credentials to then study. So there's no really need to shape 12 years of your life just to have the option that then maybe study economics because you may end up needing to be an economist because that's what your kid then enjoys most. Uh, uh, so I don't think that makes too much sense, but it's there. So we need to have empathy for that. Uh, and it's really hard to solve that those questions. Now, the third part of education is really you want to... Uh, convey some skills or have, have a good, uh, have your children grow up uh, to be functional adults and, and getting most of the potential. I think that's the most realistic uh, end here and the most natural end. And I think there must much better ways if you reinterpret the other two ends and you figure out how you can maybe have different arrangements for that, then uh, education can enter. I think a lot of it is where you live and how you live. Uh, and I think there will be much more need in the future of families living together and sharing some of that infrastructure, which is really shaped for children growing up in a safe way, in a way that fosters their curiosity and really brings out what's already in children who are curious anyway. And education happens usually if you don't impose uh, on them. I mean, usually even like most people assume that people then uh, children would then just be on the iPad or, or, or the smartphone. Usually that only happens because parents need the babysitting. You can't now you need to get some work done. So you give them the cell phone and they get addicted to that. Otherwise it doesn't really happen. It doesn't happen with my kids that uh, outside of those specific contexts that they would uh, grab something. So children usually prefer to, to play with other children. And a lot of that play can be, fostered by the right environment, tools and toys, where there's not really a difference in bringing out more of the potential. Uh, and so I need to, I think a lot more thought has to go into that. It has gone into that, but usually there's a mismatch between the surroundings where you live, the people who are really into that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, we have a tradition of alternative schools, but they are all a bit, uh, in most legal surroundings, you need to have some kind of equivalence with curricula, and it comes from a totally different needs and tradition. Um, uh, the, uh, the best thing about typical Western schooling is it uh, imposes, in a sense, on children uh, repetitive analytical skill and, and uh, alphabetical skill, like those kind of written language-based skills. Uh, 
that's fine. I think you shouldn't do without that. I think it's good to expose, not impose, to expose children and, and somehow push them a little bit if it's really not working out so that they get a grasp of those skills. Uh, but I don't think you need 12 years for alphabetization. And uh, right now it's not even delivering that. So uh, you can now uh, have the a school leaving exam, which uh, in the uh, 19th century was like a tiny elite, uh, which had to be fluent in Latin and compose poems in Latin and so on a very high level of a very limited set of a culturally transmitted important knowledge, uh, which is not bad, but it's a bit overrated, I'd say, compared to other skills and, and forms of knowledge. Uh, uh, and that's not even delivered right now because schools, of course, had to take in everyone, not just an elite. So almost everyone now goes on to study, even though if your interests and talents are more in the practical realm, uh, you don't really get to pursue them other than a hobby. And you tend to think, start to think in that kind of white collar career thing. Well, I uh, went to so much schooling. Now I, I demand a job that's fit for people with so much schooling. Uh, and I wait out until someone offers me the right job with the right salary that's right for my standing as someone who's so schooled. And it's, that's all very misleading. So I think we'll see much more innovation. We've seen some innovation. Of course, the internet makes possible a lot of that. Uh, uh, I very much like that, that Elon Musk, of course, with all his, his problems, an entrepreneur took, tried to take the responsibility for his children and started a project out of which now something is tried to, to scale up in the synthesis project, which I think is going the right way, but it's only one part, it's only one segment. I mean, now you can do like uh, once per week, this kind of online gaming with real children, which is really designed to be a didactical learning experience. I think that's the right way to have playful experiences where you try to convey skills and, and uh, uh, different skills need to be learned in a different way. I think there'll be more longing for physical learning, not just digital, not just online learning. Uh, I don't think it makes too much sense to have your children every day from nine to five in front of a screen. Uh, it seems to be the best schooling experience there is nowadays is really to have your children uh, uh, nine to five to the screen every day with what's on offer on the market. Uh, uh, because the real problem is the scaling uh, situation. If you have physical training, it really doesn't scale up. It's very hard to make a business out of that. I myself an educational entrepreneur. I tried a lot of things really hard to make that work. So I always ended up with the older and older participants uh, uh, who have the leisure and the money to pursue uh, free education and really hard to do something for kids without shaping the surroundings where they live and, and, and the lifestyles of the parents. So a lot of things have to match together. And I think uh, that's why the free private cities approach is important for education as well. I think once we have the possibility to shape surroundings according to our needs and that will be the needs of families as well, having kids, uh, then we'll have a lot of uh, innovation education and it may mean less schooling and less education even. Uh, I mean, if the uh, place where you live is as perfectly shaped as a learning experience, then you don't need much uh, worry about education. You still have some oversight, uh, 
uh, and some teaching, but not in the sense of teaching is rather mentoring and, and guiding kids and making sure that they are fine and, and uh, that the different age groups uh, have a good match uh, and things like that. And there's a lot to be learned from alternative schools and projects out there. There's a lot, if you look on the global scale, there's a lot of small scale ideas and a lot of interesting traditions. And uh, uh, it's just generally is a mismatch between the different ends and the way how we live. Uh, and uh, that tends to make it a bit frustrating and one shouldn't be too impatient to expect something out of a big, big idea and big reform where you need to change human nature in a way or something and then expect it to uh, provide miracles that your kids will by sending them to that kind of perfect school, school they all emerge as Elon Musk's or uh, Nobel laureates or something like that. Uh, uh, that's a bit too high expectation on education. Usually it just brings out what's already in there and uh, uh, yeah, you shouldn't stress our children so much uh, and seeing that as a career preparation is, ah, you got to do that now at that age and that great. Otherwise, you'll never have a job as uh, who knows. Uh, uh, but then again, I'm a bit more critical than the very alternative approach, which is I'll just let them play as they like. I think there's some responsibility in shaping uh, the surroundings, the tools, the toys that they learn with and, and offering and helping them explore the real world with something fascinating, something you can shape, interact with, and not just uh, uh, like let them withdraw into virtual words uh, or repetitive behavior or, or uh, so vicious social behavior, which is usually triggered by peer groups if you don't pay attention. So it's really hard to keep out all the distortions and perversions of our modern world. Uh, and you don't want to protect your children too much. So it's a lot of small scale innovations, which are hard to figure out and don't have perfect solutions to it. So if you expect perfection utopia, uh, you're taking out an experience on your kids, don't do that. Uh, just take a bit less uh, serious, I think, education. Uh, and for many, it's the reason that, and, and usually it's, it's uh, 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 mothers who care really much and are afraid of the uncertainty for their kids to say, oh, we can't do that because we got to be absolutely certain for the next 12 years where's the perfect school or the best school given the surroundings and, and the best credentials and, and what you've done on the side and so on. And, and yeah, don't do that. I mean, you can have empathy for that and understand it, understand it and address it, uh, but understand how you played a little bit by uh, overdrawn legitimacy of educational experts and structures and institutions who want to sell you that, that you really depend on them and their structures and otherwise your life will have a fail your children will have a failed life if you don't follow uh, their guidance and institutions and don't lock your kids up for most of the day in an institutions uh, by people who are really not meant to do that job it's a different job it, it comes from a different tradition it's really people as a math teacher as a, as a language teacher there's a very different tradition it was meant for an elite to be introduced in a cultural tradition based on literacy, uh, based on a humanistic kind of passing on the, the ancient tradition, because most people in modernity felt like they are behind the ancients and somehow have to make up for that. That was a higher culture and so on. And there's some value in it, but it's just crazy to make a one size fits all solution out of that and, and to understand teachers in that kind of way. and uh, uh, think that that's something children need uh, without expressing it as even they are unhappy. I mean, some children are really happy in that setting and that's fine, not worry too much, but have your child being unhappy because you really think that's how it's supposed to be, it doesn't make any sense.
Regular listeners to this show will know I'm smiling from ear to ear listening to you uh, here because uh, we are singing from the same song sheet. We're fighting the same battles. Cool. You managed to do it without getting triggered. I, I get triggered so easily when talking about education and the, the many, many problems we have with it and the, the answers uh, that are being built. Uh, I'm sure you've had lots of conversations with this where, again, if you challenge the education system, like the norm, most people, they get triggered like because it challenges their legitimacy again. Like, like, like we were talking about with the... Um, the economists, you know, if, if you if you dare stand at the wall of a legacy system and question the whole structure, you're going to be faced down pretty hard and pretty strong by those that are defending it. It's it's nuts. They're just not willing to listen or accept that there might be another way or accept that the system is doing kids damage. We have the evidence. We know it's doing kids damage. But yet, no one's willing to accept that. There's no accountability again. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or it's the adverse, perverse accountability where if it fails, it's ever more reason to have more schooling and more resourcing into that. Uh, exactly. Typical. It's what they do here in France. Now, schooling from three. You're yeah. like, what? <laughs> Say what? They have three-year-olds in a sleep room together every day. I mean, what are we doing? And you're right. It is just daycare. And if anybody is getting triggered by this, then I, I suggest you, you're listening to some past shows because I've I've interviewed Peter Gray on the show and I've interviewed Naomi Fisher, who's a uh, clinical psychologist who talks about the uh, the damage being done to kids and the alternative choices, because there are many now there and you can mix and match. Um, so what I what I want to see from free private cities is micro schools popping up around the free private cities so i can then become a world traveler again once we get through all of this nonsense and borders open up and we get over this hump of hysterical behavior that's been going on at the moment but i want to travel with my family show them the world go to a free private city for three or four months find those micro schools find those mentors shape their minds follow their minds what's what's interesting that particular kid and then how can i get in the way at a certain part and put the tools in front of them whether that's finding someone else to mentor them whether that's buying them the certain thing that they need to carry on whether it's a guitar or a, a computer or whatever it is that they're showing interest in and strewing those um things along the way that to me that that's that's where we should be headed and if the free, free private cities are set up, or the citadels, shall we say, are set up in the way that you explain, where you get there, and it isn't just this, you know, complete anarchy, but there is some kind of legal structure that yeah. you can fall back on, and there are private property rights that you can fall back on. Perhaps you start owning property in part of these jurisdictions, yeah. and you can start swapping with other people that are trying to do the same thing. It's... it's it, it, Bitcoin it's is hope. That is, yeah, you got it. <laughs> that's that's the vision. We're uh, we're really hard on making that a reality. 
Uh, problem is it's a long-term vision and uh, it's uh, in the current market structure, it's very hard to make a business model out of it. In particular, the educational part uh, doesn't scale too much. So we're also looking as a foundation, of course, for philanthropic uh, effort of people. So anyone uh, listening and feels there's a really need for that kind of institutional innovation. In Europe, we have the problem with crowding out. So a lot of debt schooling is free uh, as well. We don't have the tradition of paying large fees as in the US, which makes it a bit easier for alternative uh, solution and projects. Uh, uh, so really anyone who feels as passionate as uh, we do about that, uh, please get in touch and share your ideas uh, uh, and ways to make that a reality. We have lots of interest of families uh, looking for that kind of reality. It's just, it's challenging because it's it's not just having a company uh, setting up shop in, in a legal special administrative zone, but it's having something that will take a while to become an established model of living together and, and being able to sustain itself financially immediately. Uh, uh, so I, I think some of those things are so long term that the link between like getting a dividend out and being a philanthropic project with no dividend, it's a bit blurry. Uh, I think still you benefit personally by investing and building up institutions like that uh, in the long run. Uh, but those parts, in particular education, I've seen it as an educational entrepreneur. Uh, you need to have a very, very long-term approach, which is very similar to a philanthropic approach. And don't expect to get a profit uh, very soon out of that, but uh, you still, I think you can, and there's a legitimate need. Uh, and I think there'll be more of that. And we've seen it in the 19th, early 20th century as well. If there's a lot of wealth, uh, some people tend to become patrons of culture. With, because they have a very long-term approach and they want to build up something that's for eternity and leave behind a legacy. Uh, and I think part of that uh, will, will shape the culture and, and the institutions of, uh, of the more economic settings of the free private city uh, industry that's shaping up. I have a feeling we can have many offline conversations, Rahim. Because there's cool. lots, there's lots and lots I'll be able to help you out with on, on the education side and put you in touch with micro schools and people that are looking to do this as well. So we will definitely follow up on that. Uh, just out of interest, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, um, how many kids do you have and, and what age? Two? What age are they now? Below school age. Right. So this is why you're getting ahead of the game. <laughs> I see. It all makes sense now. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, you're 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 building it. You're building it. And the educational entrepreneurial side of things, what, uh, have you tried starting a school, or what, what's um, what's the project you've been working on, or is it all yeah, intertwined? But, yeah, it's a scholarium. It's a high uh, institute for higher education. Uh, right, right. I did experience for for younger participants, but only starting at age sixteen, and already there the problems of crowding out, uh, mm. legacy structures were apparent. Uh, uh, that it's, it's most based on higher education because of course there's a lot of room for innovation as we all universities are failing uh, uh, I mean that the damage is not that high I'd say compared to, to the lower ages uh, uh, but uh, the need is there and it's possible it has been possible to sustain our, our little institute without any subsidy or credit or so on on its own since its inception and it's been grown uh, so that's I, I'm proud about that and happy it was possible to create a new institution like that that can sustain itself uh, and I, I think that's important. Rahim we've gone way over time and that's because I ask you about education at the end. <laughs> Listen I'm going to let you go this has been a great great conversation I really appreciate you taking the time please let people know where they can come and find you the best way to get in touch with you. 
freeprivatecities.com. Uh, the Scholarium is only a Dresden German speaking audience, unfortunately, which is large in Europe, but right. not so large outside of Europe. Okay. And I forgot to ask you the last question, damn it. And I'm going to put you on the spot. So you're going to have to think quick. If you had one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to and why? Uh, last um, orange so, pill. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really hard to, uh, to say. No, no, I'm, I'm at a loss <laughs> now because it's a really difficult question. I mean, about causality. I think someone I don't know yet. Uh, so someone who'll be important in 10 years, uh, but just now getting started is why I don't know him because uh, everyone I would know now at the top of my head already has his legacy behind him. Uh, so I think it's all about the future. So sorry to try to avoid that question, but I don't want to put anyone in the center who's known and I would know immediately. Uh, and of course, someone who I only know and no one else would make any sense to. Well, that's a unique answer. And that doesn't surprise me coming from the last Austrian, Austrian economist. <laughs> so I appreciate it. All right. Have a great day, Rahim. And uh, yeah, so I'll much catch up with you soon. Take sure, care. Stay in touch. All right. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening and thank you Raheem again for coming on the show. I know I kept you longer than expected, but that last question about education, you clearly found your stride there. That's uh, another passion of yours and mine, which I hope we can work on together in the future. Uh, I'd love to hear back from the plebs what they think about free private cities and this idea of the citadel and the vision that... Uh, I think many Bitcoiners share being able to hop around these free private cities in the next five to ten years time, however long it's going to take, and using them as kind of springboards to go and educate ourselves in different parts of the world, different cultures, and, and take our families with us. Bitcoin gives us hope, and let's, let's hope this does become the citadels of the future, because I think that's a, a much better option than just sitting in one castle surrounded by a moat but uh, who knows who knows where this is all headed thanks everybody for tuning in thank you so much for rating reviewing subscribing whatever it is you do to support the show the feedback on twitter is always great fun love the banter make sure you check out the show sponsors if you're in the uk go start stacking with coinfloor.co.uk if you're in the us use swanbitcoin.com and if you're in Re uh, europe use relay r-e-l-a-i.ch and you know where to get your Bitbox O2 Bitcoin only edition wallet. It's shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. Keep stacking, but stack safe, guys. And I'll see you in the free private cities. Take care.